Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. Uh, it is February the 27th, almost the end of the month. Um, I'm delighted to be joined today by Narendra Taneja, India's, India's leading energy expert, Bora Barryman, managing partner at the Hormuz Straits Partnership, and Rob Barnett, Senior Global Energy and Commodity Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks so much, uh, gentlemen, for joining us. Uh, no shortage of things to talk about. Uh, Bora, if I can start with you and just talk a bit about the general trajectory for oil, really, um, uh, with all these sort of peripheral uh, elements that are influencing it, geopolitics still being held pretty limited in its in its in how it's being priced in. Uh, uh, one or two articles there showing us that sort of Goldman Sachs, for example, looking in, for the summer peak to be hitting 87 for Brent. That doesn't seem to be a very strong trajectory for what is a pretty uncertain time for oil markets. What's what's your sort of view on where we're going? Look, in, in the big picture, we've seen um, an overall trend over the past uh, several years, you could say, of the whole commodity um, complex coming off from highs of uh, 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 post-COVID highs. This is reflected in the price of obviously crude, but also uh, battery materials like lithium. They've come down significantly yeah. over the past few years. Um, but it was an interesting, actually, Gulf Intelligence uh, uh, infographic that was distributed yesterday that we need more capacity, more investment in capacity for both, uh, actually, for, for the battery materials specifically, that there will be a shortage given the the energy transition uh, in, in the capacity for these materials to be met. And I think, you know, I, I view oil in that uh, context that, you know, right now there may be some overcapacity, but there the in, investment is not going into the sector. And in, in the long run, there will be demand from many sectors for hydrocarbon uh, originated products. Of course, fuel is what we're, familiar with, but there are the petrochemicals, there are the fertilizers, there's LNG, there needs to be investment into the sector. And OPEC is clearly, um, you know, clearly doing something about overcapacity. Um, and again, and again, stepping back on this um, trend that there has been a kind of a downward pressure on oil, you know, that has underpinned I would say a, a lot of the breathing room that the Western economies have have uh, experienced and enjoyed over the past two years, because if we look at uh, the U.S., you know we could say core inflation is four uh, percent, stripping out and the, the impact of energy. In the U.K., you know core inflation is five percent. Whereas services inflation is six and a half percent. So if there's any hope for economic recovery, growth, and a reduction in rates, um, it has come from this uh, relatively benign energy price outlook, mm. at least benign from the perspective of the consumers. Okay. But in the long run, I think there's a lot of difficult decisions to be made because I don't expect the prices to stay that low uh, in the long run. 
Okay, thanks, Bora. Yeah, so I mean, Rob, I'll go to you with that. You know, the 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 the, the commentary that we're getting a lot is, you know, oil is relatively cheap, right, compared to other uh, consumer products, whether it's your food or your coffee or or anything else, and and it has been muted. Also, if we look more short term, the the recent challenges, shipping challenges, which we'll talk about later, uh, investment as a long term. You've got uh, uh, obviously, uh, you know, even the OPEC cuts coming in and trying to support the price, and yet we're still not seeing that. So, um, your 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 sort of point of view. I know your your colleague Mike has has always got a bearish outlook. At some point, we're looking, we're dropping down to forty dollars, but um, it looks like we're kind of staying at least at a minimum on this in this floor. Well, that's right. I think that there's certainly a geopolitical risk premium that you're still seeing in the market right now. Uh, but I would say generally, our team, when we look at the fundamentals, we see a pretty soft set of demand numbers, ample supply in the near term. But that setup that I think Bora was describing, where there's potentially underinvestment in the medium term with Saudi Arabia, for example, taking some cap capex that they were going to do over the long term and kind of ta tabling that for now. So when you look out over kind of multi-year time horizon, we see the potential for a much tighter market. But here in the near term, I think the main factor that's uh, really helping to support some of the pricing is all the headlines and geopolitical risks that we're still seeing. Okay, thanks, Rob. Narendra, good morning again. Uh, let's talk a bit about um, the geopolitical, not risk, but 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 action. You know, the U and with regards to India, there's a bulletin headline also on our news uh, uh, bulletin today about um, US sanctions, renewed sanctions we've seen uh, starting to be implemented recently as well. And you know, finally, some commentary that Russian oil ship and shipping is going to be actually impacted by these sanctions now. And of course, one big recipient of Russian oil last year continues to be into this year's India. Uh, what, what's from your perspective? Are there any concerns on that as there are already indications that India is taking less Russian oil? Well, I have seen, uh, you know, we've seen the reports, as you know, that Indian refiners, whether public sector or the private sector, they buy a majority, most of their oil from Russia on delivered basis, which means that Russian exporters, they take care of shipping and insurance. So as long as, you know, uh, you know, oil is available, Russian oil is available to Indian refiners on delivered basis, I think India will continue to buy. Uh, that seems to be the policy of the government and also majority of refiners, because economics work for us and uh, and, and 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 India, you know, we have no problem in. There are no other issues in terms of uh, you know buying Russian oil because there are no Indian sanctions against Russia. Yeah, uh, but there will be uh, an impact on Russian ships trying to get to India. That's my point: is that that these new sanctions people are saying will start to impact. Well, yes, I mean, we have seen those, those reports. And uh, uh, so, as I said, that, you know, Indian refiners, uh, as long as Russia is able to give attractive discounts and they're able to deliver on, uh, deli uh, you know, uh, delivered basis, I think India will continue to buy. Uh, I'm not, now we have to see how Russian exporters, I mean, they can kind of, you know, find a way, they can find a way to still to continue to deliver oil 
to Indian refiners, I think it went business as usual. But if they can't find more ships, because India's shipping fleet is very small, 90% of our oil is exported, uh, sorry, imported uh, using foreign foreign bottoms. So which means that, you know, we don't have our own ships which can go to Russia, bring it to our refiners. So Russia, they have to provide and they have been providing so far. So let's see how it works out, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, as far as Russian exporters are concerned. If they can do, I think it, it's going to be business as usual. If they can't find ships, they can't find a solution, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Okay, thanks, Namrata. Bora, just back to you on that point. I mean, there are some indications, let's say Europe, in terms of supplies getting to Europe, whether it's products, crude, the general sort of possible challenge of global shipping shortages, right? I mean, you've got the practical thing of sanctions being applied on Russian tankers, but then we have the Red Sea disruptions and and the more tonnage uh, mile, and you know, again, how that kind of flows into supply of shipping and cost. Obviously, um, are we going to see? I mean, are you seeing any any disruption, real disruption possibility to Europe getting its supplies of products uh, or, or crude or, or any other or anywhere else for that matter? Is there, is is there going to be a concern on that this year, as there wasn't last year, really? Well, generally, the disruptions that um, Europe experiences. Uh, they impose on themselves. So uh, it's up to Europe, I would say, in terms of are they able to access the uh, energy flows which they require. They're, and what I meant by that were the sanctions on Russia, of course. I was uh, trying to quip there. Uh, however, there are also the risks of uh, energy supplies from the U.S. as increasingly... You know, there are these odd regulations uh, preventing, um, in the medium term, expansion of um, LNG import uh, facilities that would be targeting um, bringing American products to, to Europe. And, and I believe the rationale for those regulations were related to environmental concerns of the Biden administration. So, you know, the policy is we don't buy from Russia. OPEC is not investing into um, certainly crude infrastructure. They are investing into LNG infrastructure. We've seen uh, Shell and uh, and Qatar make, make uh, you know strong statements that they will invest mm -hmm. into uh, the LNG space. However, with an eye on the Asian market, not necessarily exports to Europe. So I, I think for the again for the for the medium term. Uh, whatever energy bottlenecks exist in Europe are primarily self-imposed related to energy transition and net zero targets and to the extent that they can be flexible with those um, restrictions that they place on themselves I think Europe will get access to the energy it requires but uh, there will be some political frictions and sparks along the okay. way um, Rob, just addressing those, that I wanted to talk about gas. We talked a bit about it on the podcast yesterday, but we have had a couple of announcements from Saudi and Qatar this week. You know, um, new discoveries, plans to expand uh, gas. Why now? Why do you think, I mean, and to Asia, as Boris said, that was at the main market they'd be targeting. There seems to be plenty of gas coming online in the next few years already. Uh, prices are at historic lows if you look at Henry Hub, etc. So, um, again, what do you think is spurring this? Well, I think it's probably 
a reflection of the long-term growth trends. You know, under a good scenario over the next decade to two decades, maybe oil demand might grow at 1% a year, something like that. I mean, it's 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 a much slower growth uh, outlook for the fuel. When you look at gas, globally, we believe gas demand could grow you know 5% plus this you know it's 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 not growing as fast as wind and solar but it's a uh, it's a fuel that has a, a pretty good trajectory in terms of that fundamental demand outlook and so whether you're looking at some of the national oil companies in in the middle east and kind of where they're positioning around that or a number of the western energy majors you know, this is a big part of their growth story. And I also think it is part of their energy transition story. Natural gas has uh, a, a much lower carbon footprint than the other fossil fuels. It's the certainly the low carbon cousin of coal uh, within the power sector. And so I think because of the energy transition out there and the, and the pressure to reduce emissions, I think gas really fits in with that story. And so I just generally think that that's why you're seeing continued announcements and continued investment there. And just quickly on the LNG export piece from the US, um, I would say that most of our colleagues who, who've got a better tie-in to what's going on in DC see this as kind of more of a a pause than a permanent mm. change in U.S. position, even if there's not a change in power. Um, a lot of the near-term projects are already have necessary permits. So you're really looking out kind of three, four year plus timeline before you'd see anything uh, affecting the, the LNG market in terms of a, a real physical impact. So assuming they get permitting resumed at some point, uh, I think that the U.S. can continue to play a role there. Yeah, that's just maybe a, a political pause, if you like, playing the climate angle, perhaps Biden, for a few months ahead of the elections, while while gasoline prices remain fairly steady. Um, we had that survey. That's the result we had yesterday, that the only way is up for nat gas prices. Narendra, let's take the opportunity, as we have you this morning, uh, and 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 talk about the elections uh, coming up for India, and with in, in the view of economy, economic planning, more of the same, um, assuming... Uh, Mr. Modi will win, uh, and is he he is the top contender right now. Um, where do you see uh, economic changes happening at all uh, from the current agenda? Anything that we need to know that uh, to expect in terms of a new a new administration, new economic plan? Well, I think it's uh, uh, you know, if you go by the reports from the ground, I think uh, there's a strong possibility of uh, Prime Minister Modi returning to, to power for the third term. And in fact, if you look around in business or in oil and gas circles, it's kind of more or less already done and concluded things. So majority of players are looking at India uh, kind of under Modi, you know, uh, 3.0. So that's the kind of mood in the country and sentiments. Uh, but as you know, the, the government has focused a lot on the energy sector, both on the traditional energy like oil and gas and even coal, and at the same time on renewable. 
So I think that trend will continue. You know, uh, going to be massive investments in in uh, and expansion in areas like hydrogen, solar, uh, offshore wind, and nuclear, and so on. But at the same time, it's not going to happen at the cost of oil and gas or coal. I think the focus on on oil exploration, domestic oil and gas exploration, will continue. And at the same time, Indian companies company will you know keep looking at opportunities overseas to acquire ENP assets wherever possible. So that will continue. So because you know we still remain by and large a fossil fuel economy, it's, it will change, but it's going to take maybe four decades or five decades. Who knows? But the uh, but we have got very clear agenda in terms of 2030, 2040, 2050. Milestones are already there. But you also see, for instance, we are today consuming, uh, for the sake of discussion, 5.4 bi- uh, million barrels of oil every day is only going to go up to six million uh, barrels in in you know coming years and make up go up to even eight million barrels in coming a couple of decades or uh, you know 25 years and so so that's if we have to sustain growth rate at 8% and we want to grow it at, at 10% so if you want to grow at 10% in order to eradicate poverty and make india the third largest economy in the world which is a very kind of you know declared agenda in that case we need more oil we need more gas and whether we like it or not we also need more coal so and plus, of course, the renewables and everything. So I think it's uh, uh, that will continue in India. For instance, there is no kind of uh, uh, oil is a respected commodity, gas is a respected commodity, even coal is a respected commodity. So there is no demonization of oil in India or gas or coal for that matter because people understand even those who are heavily invested investing in renewable, they know that for an economy like India where we still have large number of people, you know, uh, under energy poverty line. And at the same time, we are the fastest growing, uh, you know, large economy in the world. We, whether we like it or not, but we need to invest more oil and in oil, more in gas, more in LNG terminals, more in ENP assets, more even in modern generation coal mines. So that's the kind of view that does. But at the same time, India is aligned, very well aligned with the global sentiments that we need to do more in order to, you know, in terms of, you know, getting rid of, uh, uh, you know, uh, emissions. So that is also very much on the agenda. So traditional oil, gas, coal will continue to be priority area together with renewables and atomic. And at the same time, India wants to be at the, you know, uh, forefront in terms of, you know, dealing with crises like climate change and global boiling or call it by any name. All of the above. India can afford to do that, I guess, as, as as an economic engine. I mean, Rob, I'll just go back to you just to compare. I mean, 8%, 9% growth. We're not going to see many countries hitting that, are we, including China uh, anymore. But give us your quick take, and then I'll go to Bora on China uh, also for his outlook on that. Um, U.S. economy, you know, we've seen a very strong start to stock markets. Boom, biddy, boom. Uh, you know, uh, not that that is, but there is a reflection really of, of probably, you know, what's happening with, with the disposable income more than anything else. But what's the trajectory now going forward in terms of Fed policy, uh, you know, interest rates not expecting to be cut till at least June. So, again, has, how, has the sentiment changed in the last three months for the, for the year, for the six months going forward? Well, I think that uh, the U.S. economy uh, continues to deliver. Uh, I think that you kind of have to keep in mind that when when you look at the U.S. landscape, energy is a, a pretty small piece 
of the overall mix, right? I mean, I, th I think energy comprises around 2% of US GDP. So even though the US is an energy behemoth uh, in, in exporting more energy resources than it has in a very long time, I don't think it's a fixation of the political and economic elite because it's just not as big of a driver of the overall economy as it is in some other countries. So my sort of general view is that, uh, you know, when you, when you look at kind of Fed policy, uh, they're not particularly concerned about what's going on in the oil patch per se. And they're much more kind of looking at where inflation levels are in this country and keeping those in check. And so, um, you know, we'll see what, what happens uh, down the road. But um, I, I think the sort of general economic growth story continues to be uh, pretty strong here in the U.S., despite, uh, you know, calls for recessions and this kind of thing for, for quite some time that just haven't uh, seemed to materialize. Of course, a lot of that growth story is uh, tech, right? So te tech continues uh, to, to deliver strong results for the U.S. economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, tech, especially the stock market. Um, there's our question for today, which addresses U.S. oil supply uh, growth. Uh, for this year, uh, forecast from IE Week, which is of course happening right now in London. Uh, lots of stats being spewed out there. Um, what's more likely, 500 uh, barrels a day growth or uh, closer to a million? And I know, Rob, when we had your comments earlier this year, uh, you weren't um, too optimistic on you know medium term US production growth. Borrow, let's go to you on that. Um, what? How would you vote on this one? Uh, from what you're hearing in the market and 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 how is that going to impact if at all uh opec thinking and it's in its forward planning for the next three to six months look i don't really have a strong view on that uh if you're talking about us uh crude uh production um capacity growth outlook you know i would have voted on the um downside right, um, the 500 option. Because, you know, there are other things to invest in in the US. It's a very rich economy. There's this Inflation Reduction Act. Tech is booming. Why should I invest in um, getting more oil and gas out of the ground when the price outlook, uh, at least in the medium term and, and, and from a regulatory perspective, it's not a favored uh, sector. But I want to balance uh, on... Um, a couple points, if I may, you know, I was very impressed by Narendra's ambition that, um, you know, India should grow at such a robust rate and that it, it needs access to energy, right? Whereas in the, the U.S., the Biden line, um, at, at least, you know, I was watching the BBC and Kathy Kay mentioned that Americans shouldn't be so down on Biden since the U.S. has the highest growth rate amongst the advanced economies. And, um, you know, that sounds nice, but what what is Germany growing at? What is the United Kingdom growing at? They're shrinking. And uh, America's two and a half percent growth rate, that's quite impressive. It's coming from the, the services and Inflation Reduction Act, et cetera. But um, 
you look at the U.S. deficit, it's six percent of GDP. So without that uh, access to money printing and borrowing, what well, would be be the growth rate? So I'm quite uh, I'm quite impressed that uh, India is is taking off. I would say under much stronger uh, uh, fiscal foundations. Okay, and Arendra, any concerns in India about inflation? Uh, I mean, with this growth, obviously, uh, comes comes uh, comes inflation usually. Um, in terms of how that might filter down through the economy, or 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 is the country feeling pretty steady on that on that front? Well, by and large, I would say the country is feeling quite steady. But at the same time, you know, uh, we are a democracy, a liberal democracy, very closely kind of interlinked with economies like the US or, you know, Western Japan, Australia and, and other, you know, such countries. So, for instance, look at IRA. I've heard many people complaining about IRA. But in India, when we look at our IRA, we see kind of, you know, that it's okay for us because IRA means that America would kind of be investing more also in manufacturing and uh, would basically take away, you know, a, a part of the, you know, uh, thing from China. And, uh, and that would deliver, uh, that would mean that countries like India, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia might benefit. And they also, also emerge as a kind of counterbalance in terms of manufacturing to China, uh, besides, of course, the U.S., so which means that it has kind of potential to deliver uh, geopolitical dividends for majority of economies, free economies in Asia. So which I think is a plus plus. And at the same time, you know, uh, our worry is that China at the same time, we don't want China to suffer. We want China to continue to grow because that's uh, in our, in our uh, benefit. Because a steady growing China is good news for us. What we don't want is that, you know, a hostile China in terms of, you know, its political ambitions, geopolitical ambition. That's bad, of course. That's really weird. And that's what basically worries not only India, but majority of countries in the Indo-Pacific region, including Japan, Australia, and even Indonesia, and of course, Vietnam. In fact, many, most countries in Indo-Pacific region. So I think it's, it's a bit of a mixed picture. So therefore, for India, India's focus is basically, you know, we have declared already it's a kind of that we want to be a developed economy by 2047. That does not mean that our per capita would grow to match with, let's say, Germany or the U.S., but by and large, the size of economy would be in the region of about 27 to 30 trillion dollars. So that's the declared goal. And there is a the milestones being basically, you know, uh, talked about. Uh, so for that, since we are an energy deficit country, we need lots and lots of energy. Even if, for instance, look at our push in solar, we are doing very well. But then 80 to 90% equipment that we use for solar are coming still coming from China. And so therefore we are setting up two massive kind of gigafactories in order to actually over the five mm -hmm. years become a major exporter of you know solar equipment, hydrogen equipment, so on and so forth. So kind of these are the kind of plans the country is working on. We are also attracting a lot of foreign investment, foreign companies are coming in into India investing here. So I think, uh, you know, coming four, five years, seven years, Indian overall energy landscape, economic landscape is going to look uh, pretty attractive. I mean, there are still some people around in the world who are a bit skeptical when you met the moment you mentioned India. But I think wait for another four, five, six years, the kind of, you know, policy push and policy infrastructure that has been already put in place and the kind of investment that's coming in 
And I think the landscape is going to be very, very attractive. As I said, India is energy deficit, and that's an issue the government of India is addressing. And that includes various state governments since we are a the structure on, on priority basis. And that's going to make that's going to be a big, big game changer. Okay, thanks, Narendra. Rob, I mean, on that point of the IRA, uh, how much is are those plans uh, being sort of talked about within the current campaign, the presidential campaign, which is well on its way, isn't it? Uh, uh, I, see, I see that from one of our headlines, we have another possible government shutdown looming yet again, this vicious cycle of, of course, it won't happen. Um, you know, what, what from, in terms of forward looking, the US economy is doing very well, but it doesn't seem to be, from what we read, giving Biden a lot of impetus in his, or the Democrats, a lot of impetus uh, in their in their polling or, or campaign. What would you say about that? And why is that being missed? Well, so I think that it's very hard to get voters or the sort of general public in the U.S. excited about energy policy. I do think that it's possible you'll see some rhetoric on the Republican side about a potential IRA repeal. Yeah, but it's not just about energy. It's about manufacturing and everything, chips, et cetera, like Narendra just mentioned. Oh, absolutely right. So the, it, it, the Inflation Reduction Act is not a good name. It is it is much more than that. It is pretty much an energy policy act. And then I think if you if you were to sort of think about the politics of a repeal, even if it is an election issue, I would be very surprised to to go in and sort of. Uh, split the hairs on undoing it. It, it, similar to Obamacare. Uh, Republicans um, often lament that bill, but it still remains the law of the land. And I think particularly on clean energy or the, some of the IRA provisions, I mean, look at where all the, the investments occurring. It's, it's, it's all over the U.S. It's not just happening in uh, Democratic states. And so you'll, you'll certainly have uh, Republican House lawmakers where you've got uh, new uh, EV production facilities or solar production facilities going into their districts. It'd be hard to uh, to vote against some of those things, especially now that the, the CapEx cycle is already underway. Okay, thanks, Rob. There's the result of our survey uh, for today. Pretty close, 60-40, so maybe it'll be somewhere uh, in the middle. Bora, we've run out of time, but just to go quickly to you, just on this point of sort of uh, uh, nearshoring and the investments being made by the US, presumably to lessen their reliance on, on manufacturers like China, India doing the same going forward. I mean, do you see this deglobalization trend that we're seeing kick into action too little, too late? Or is it going to be a solution to make sure that countries feel individually more secure on on their supplies of their commodities and whatever else they might be investing in? No, I think we'll, we, we will continue to see globalization, but it will just look different. Um, there's been, um, I would say, a diversification of, of the interdependence. It was a, a very strong America-China uh, link, and we had seen books written about it called Chimerica, right, that would dominate the world economy. I remember that uh, clearly. But now I think America is definitely looking at Mexico uh, more carefully, uh, Vietnam, India, the, the reason Taiwan is so strategic on the chip side. 
um, you know, the, the, these countries, especially around China, are going to be uh, benefiting uh, definitely from America's policy. But and, and China takes advantage of it, too, because they have great trading links and collaboration links uh, with their neighbors that they have certain frictions with. But very strong trade relations with at the same time. Even Taiwan is a major, major uh, economic partner of, of China uh, and, and they need each other. So this sort of black and white uh, us versus them kind of outlook. Uh, yes, the defense and geostrategist uh, uh, commentators tend to portray things in that light. However, from an economic perspective, um, interdependence, I think, really continues. And what we've seen in spite of sanctions and, and restrictions is that, um, you, you know, it's like water flowing down the path of least resistance. People work around um, these obstacles to get the goods, services, and investment that they need. And, and especially, a final comment for me on, on the energy transition, you know, India and China working together on the solar technology because China has the solar technology. India wants it until they can re replicate it at home. They'll buy it from China and it would be uh, harmful to India if they didn't. So India looks out for themselves by trading with China. Okay, thanks, Bor. I saw actually you posted on tomorrow's news and there was a very interesting FT article uh, that came out online, which is that the US should be considering, you know, forget about the SPR, making an SRR, which is Strategic Resources Reserves, and creating a market or a fund, let's say, uh, for that, you know, because that's what we should be really looking at in terms of reliance on things like nickel, cobalt, etc. Anyway, for another day, thanks so much, gentlemen, to Bora, Rob and Narendra for joining us today and have a great week ahead. Thanks, everyone.